every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Lauren Vaccarello, CMO of Talent. Lauren is an award-winning marketing executive with a track record of accelerating revenue growth for some of the fastest growing SaaS companies in Silicon Valley, including Box, AdRoll, and Salesforce. On this episode, Lauren talks about how to hit your numbers in the short term while working to expand the scope of who you're selling to in the long term. She also discusses how to leverage your executive team to build brand trust and shares a couple uncuttable budget items that may surprise you. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Lauren Vaccarello, CMO of Talend, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I have a very special guest, my good friend, Lauren. How are you? I'm awesome. It is so nice to be on one of these again with you. I know. It's uh, many moons ago. We uh, we spent 50 plus episodes uh, on the airwaves together. And, and now we're back for an episode of Demand Gen Visionaries. Well, it's exciting for me because um, you and I have had so many conversations, Demand Gen conversations uh, over the years and it'll be fun to share some of those uh, some of those lessons learned with our audience. It really, really will be. I am very excited and curious to see where we go with this one. So, what was your first job in demand gen? That's such a funny story in question. Um, so it's interesting. When my first job in demand gen, if I think now I can tell you what the answer is, but the first job I got, it wasn't called demand gen. So the my first job in demand gen, I was running. Ooh, my real first job in demand gen, I was running paid search marketing for an online dating company. And this was in the early, early 2000s. So we're not thinking online dating now where it's socially acceptable. This is before online dating is a socially acceptable thing to do. No one does it. Um, So think of, you know, like a 2002-ish online dating company. And I was running their, their paid search programs. And it was all about how do I get as many people to sign up as possible? And then it led to me running paid search and online marketing at an online trading company also in the early 2000s. And at the time, I didn't even know if demand gen was, it probably was a commonly used phrase, but you never thought of the online marketer and the paid search marketer to be demand gen. That was digital. It was something completely different. And today digital and demand generation are synonymous in many ways. Flash forward to today, you're the CMO of Talon. For our listeners who don't know, uh, what is Talon? Talon is the uh, leading company in data integration and data integrity. So the easiest way to understand what Talon does is you've got tons of data from lots of different sources. How do you think about bringing it all together and actually making sense of it. So we help businesses turn a lot of data into decisions. And, uh, and your scope of your role as CMO? I do all of the things. So I'm chief marketing officer. So that comprises of your traditional marketing elements like branding, creative, demand generation, which is global events, now virtual events, partner marketing, campaigns. It's also digital marketing, the website, um, everything that leads into digital marketing operations, our, our product marketing organization, all of our global marketing initiatives. And then we'll also work a lot on things. We've got a, a great product called Stitch, which is this awesome product for sales and marketing use cases of how do you get all of your sales and marketing data together in one place, say, into a Snowflake. So you use Stitch, you ingest it, put it in Snowflake, apply something like a Tableau or a Mode or a ThoughtSpot to do data visualizations. Super easy to jump in and set up. And unlike a lot of traditional B2B models, you can actually go online for stitchdata.com sign up for a free trial, buy the product. So my organization is also accountable for what are we doing for that pay-as-you-go self-serve revenue as well. So it 
extends a lot of B2B marketing from just pipeline to really having that deeper touch on revenue. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go to feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Who are your you know, ideal customer profile? Uh, who are your customers? Who are your prospects? Great question. So talent is super interesting. So I've been at talent for 14 months, maybe uh, 15 months, depending on when you decide that I started since I started and went on vacation for three weeks. So a lot of when I started so much of what talent has gone through in the last year and change is this evolution of a company. We when I joined, it was, we were very, very focused on your practitioners, your data engineers. And I came in and really saw the power of what the product does. And it's it's pretty incredible. We have uh, companies like Accor, which is a global hotel chain. And we've worked with them really, really closely on how do you pull all of your data together? How do you apply data governance so you're still having a degree of privacy? But what you really want to do and what Accor really wants to do with that data is deliver better experiences for their elite travelers. So with Talon, they're able to increase customer satisfaction for elite travelers by 12%. And we went, this is a really meaningful business impact. You have companies like AstraZeneca, who by working with Talon, they're able to bring drugs to market faster because they're able to get all of their data together in one place faster. And knowing that we are having these material business impacts, I came in and went, we're positioning the product like a tool. We're selling it to a lot of data engineers, which are great, but this is a strategic problem that every business is trying to solve. Every business is trying to understand, do I have access to all of the information that I need to make the right decisions? Is the data trusted? Am I getting it in real time? And said, I think who we're targeting is wrong. I think it's great to target the end user, But this is a material business impact. So how do we shift our product marketing, shift our branding, shift our messaging, and really start to go up market? And this is such a common misconception about demand generation is everyone assumes demand generation is, what are the events I'm running? What's the digital ad campaigns? How many emails am I spending? You know, I put a dollar in, how many dollars do I get out? Demand generation only works if you're really, really closely aligned with overall corporate corporate strategy with your product marketing organization and to come back and say, who we should really target isn't your data engineers, it's your VP of IT. How do we drive influence with our CIO? And let's build the right messaging to appeal to that. And now, how do we go execute against? So field marketing team, how do I start to build deeper relationships with with your C-level executives? So there's a big, big piece and focus on that um, in our demand generation program. So my long-winded story is who our target audience very much evolved and changed in the last year. So we primarily target an IT audience, VPs of ITs, CIOs, CDOs, and really focusing on those areas. For Stitch, which is our product in a lot of ways that are really great for sales for salespeople and for marketers, that'll be a little bit different with, say, your marketing analyst, but predominantly, it's going to be your VP of IT, CDO. Yeah, so... You know, you kind of touched on it a little bit on to like the more of the strategic portion and, and coming in. Obviously, you know, you've spent, you know, stints at Box and Salesforce and, and many of the other great SaaS companies that have really good demand gen engines. And you said that that kind of evolved. But what would you say your demand gen like strategy is? Good question. Uh, so a lot of that's a lot of that's changed in 2020. Uh, as everything has. So yeah, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you came in, you're like, hey, okay, this is the plan. This is the strategy. And then obviously half of it went out the window. It, it was half it goes out the window. The other half, we'll see what happens. Um, the way I look at the role of demand generation and the role of marketing is you need to both think short term and long term. And a lot of it is the role of the marketing organization. For short term, Our job as marketing as demand generation is how do we hit our numbers? How do we hit our goals? How do we help the sales organization drive pipeline and close deals? So on that vein, I came in and said, we have an ARR in our bookings target. We have our pipeline target. This is what marketing needs to do. So how are we actually going to hit that? So we thought a lot about what we call the sort of short-term goals. And it is, we're going to do this by... 
redefining who our target audience is and why we matter. And so much of demand generation needs to start with who's your ideal customer profile? What are the benefits you have to them? What problems do you really solve for them? And then it goes to how are we executing against it? So we redefined who we are, why we matter, who we sell to. Then came in and looked at what are the efficiencies we can do? What are the things that are slowing us down? How do we remove roadblocks? So that was rebuilding our entire website, back end, front end. If you check out the website now versus a year ago, it's dramatically different and really building that infrastructure for continuous testing and optimization. Came in and said, we're not spending a lot on digital. How do we double down on digital acquisition? Also, now things like virtual events, it was a very prescient investment considering everything had to go, <laughs> everything had to go digital this year. And then because we're, we are heavy, heavy enterprise, a lot of it's field marketing, a lot of it's executive programs. And with field marketing, traditionally field marketing are things like your lunch and learns and your closing events. We had to completely reimagine and reinvent that because you can't have a lunch and learn. You can't see people in real life. So how does this get, how does this become different? So rethought a ton, a ton on that, uh, invested more on the brand side. And then we looked at long-term and said, this is all great. I can do all this. I can hit my numbers. I can do tactical optimizations. I can run an integrated campaign. I can target a new buyer. And you know what? That'll help me hit my number this year. And that'll probably help me hit my number next year. But what am I going to do to really build and expand the scope of who I'm selling to, who I'm marketing to. And that became a lot of our long-term marketing strategy and our long-term demand strategy, which invested more in things like category development, thought leadership. Um, We've done a lot with executive programs this year. And what I think is really interesting about executive programs and executive engagement is you're going to generate, you're going to hit pipeline numbers, you're going to drive demand, they're great deal accelerators. And you'll see decent results today, but by investing in things like executive programs, executive engagement, and building those deeper relationships with senior level executives at your target audience, it is the the gift that keeps on giving. Because yes, you hit your numbers today, but the more they see you as a strategic partner, the more your deal size is going to grow. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, well, I guess not obvious to our listeners. So, you know, you and I work closely because you are a, uh, you know, in as of literally today is when it actually launched the our, our new podcast that we're creating together called Truth Be Known that Lauren hosts, which is incredibly cool. And uh, our listeners should check it out. We'll link it up in the show notes. But so I've read the brand redesign that you wrote. I've got a chance to, you know, be in, uh, a little bit involved in seeing, you know, some of the website transformation. We work, you know, closely on some of the, uh, you know, executive programs that you're talking about by seeing that stuff firsthand. And obviously, you have an ACE team uh, there. But these are all things that a year into the job, or you know, you know, fourteen, fifteen months into the job, it seems like all of the things, the seeds that you planted early on are now at the point where getting the infrastructure set so that you can start to run and be more agile and, you know, getting the house in order. Um, how did you kind of balance that? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to come in as CMO and we need to like continue hitting our, our quarterly goals here, but also like say, Hey, we need to build like a five-year plan. That's going to be, that's going to be really solid. And honestly, so much of that is expectation setting because as you know, everyone, especially every CMO who comes in, you have to get points on the board quickly. The uh, the shine wears off our penny probably faster than every other function. So you have to get points on the board quickly. You have to show momentum. And one of the things that I found to be critical was setting that clear expectation of this is what I'll deliver today. This is what you're going to see in six months. This is what you're going to see in 12 months. This is what you're going to see in 18 months and setting that you are not going to get a brand new website and 50% year over year growth from it in six months. That's not possible. That's not going to happen. The physics of getting this done, it is not going to happen. But what you will see are these things in place. And a lot of it is the, I find getting those short-term wins buys you time to get long-term wins as well. What's been really interesting, what I've loved about our executive programs program, executive programs program, is uh, it's one of those things that 
you don't necessarily see the impact on day one. It takes time to build and to build these deeper relationships. But we've actually pulled in to a lot of our a lot of our engagements, our CEO, our CRO, our chief customer officer, our CFO. So they've been part of these relationship programs that we're building, and we're setting up a ton of thought leadership within the CDO world. And it's not marketing doing it. We ran this or participated in this incredible um, forum in the UK that was all about building thought leadership in the financial vertical, especially around data. And I could have had a product marketer go and present and be part of it, or I could have the CFO go do it. And he, we have a great CFO who's an incredible speaker So he got to go in, he got to be the thought leader, he got to participate in this event. But what I really got to do was get him to buy into a program that's not going to have the best ROI on day one, but he got to see what it is and understand the, oh my gosh, I talked to this company and this company and this company, and I've started to have these relationships and the CDO of this uh, bank emailed me. So he starts to get that bit of emotional buy-in and Getting that little bit of emotional buy-in from other executives buys my program's time to build because when it comes to budgets and returns, it's, well, I could cut this. Oh, no, no, you can't cut that. Because of that, I had this great conversation with this person that led to this. So it is the short-term wins. And if you can find ways to get other executives to get an emotional buy-in to your long-term programs, they'll be your biggest advocates. Well, you're talking about something that I think is really, really hard to do. And I think you're making it sound a little little bit easier than it is because the idea to shift from like being a company that is at more of the practitioner level to go upstream and to have more executive level conversations is a really hard thing to do. And kind of what you're saying is like, you have to use your executives because those are the people who can have those conversations. Your salespeople can't have those conversations, right? Like you can't just go from, hey, my AE who's talking to someone who's, you know, at the user level to now that person's having, you know, a thoughtful discussion with the chief data officer at, you know, a Fortune 50 company. Like, that's just going to be too hard to do. And you kind of have to leverage the leaders that you have in your organization who are, you know, executives of a publicly traded company, uh, you know, that's, you know, been in the magic quadrant for five years. You know, it's not like it's not like it's something that you can just say, like, hey, we should just, you know, sick our sales team on a bunch of CIOs like that's not going to work. And they definitely don't want the neither side probably wants that. Maybe salespeople a little bit, but you are so, so, so right in it. And this is the as marketers, we take the work we do for granted so much of, well, of course, we're going to shift the conversation from the practitioner to the the VP CDO. Of course, we're going to do this. But you're right. It is. It's a lot to make that. And it's a ton of sales training. And right now, it is sending who has the most credibility. And I'll tell you, we are leveraging our exec team so much. And to a point that at one point, even my CEO went, could you, can I maybe do a little bit less? I was like, I need to know where that line is because I will put you on every press briefing. I will put you in front of every thought leadership event until it's too much. And I'm going to do that with the entire exec team because we need to change the narrative. We need to change the conversation. We need to be able to not only be seen as a strategic business partner, we need to be trusted that way. And you're right. Shifting the mindset, the communication, the credibility of every single seller takes a lot of time and we move at a speed where it's we don't necessarily always feel like we have that time so we we leverage what we have and the happy accident behind all of it is it shows the rest of the leadership team what's going on and what's possible and it gets them to to buy into it and even our CRO uh, is the we did this great great um event because we're trying to figure out how to do field events because no one can do field events the way they used to. We're trying to figure out how to build emotional connection. And with the Fortune 50, the Fortune 500, with large deals, it's about emotional connection as much as it's about your product and your messaging. You have to build that. And we ended up running this 
small-ish virtual event where we had um, a tea company in Sri Lanka. And it was for our Asia Pacific customers. And we have this tea company in Sri Lanka come in and they do this 15 minutes on how you use data in tea production and how understanding all of these conditions and pulling in all of this information is incredibly important to make tea. Goes through this whole process, super interesting. And then they go, well, let me show you how to make drinks out of the tea that we make. And how do you build those perfect circles and of ice? Goes through the whole thing. We must have had, I think, 10 customers on it. We had our CRO, our GM of APAC. All the customers loved it. I heard about that our event from our CRO so many times of how cool this was, how it led to different types of conversations with customers. And we ended up having that, call it 15, 20 minutes of fun before it went into a really serious, you know, let's talk about the future of your business and how you're making decisions. But that was the the icebreaker. I have heard more about that event that I went, why don't I get invited to these? That sounds like a lot of fun. No one invites me. And now our CRO is the one who's saying, how do we do more of those? Without me saying, no, no, I need to invest in something that's not going to drive a dollar today. But you have to believe this is going to make our deal size bigger next year. It's funny because I've, I've got to be, you know, behind the curtain a little bit working with you on this stuff. You have this grounding narrative of truth and trust, and it's core to your product, and it's something that it's really hard to accelerate trust without building relationships. And the fastest way to build relationships at scale is to get your executive team like involved and get your people out there and like you know talking and doing press and doing podcasts and and creating things like that. And obviously, you know, you have tools on the website that can assess, you know, your trust assessor, you have like, you know, all this, and it's kind of baked into a lot of, uh, or it's in all of your messaging, obviously, but it's also baked into these engagements where you're just, you know, saying like, hey, we want to create experiences that people enjoy, we want to, you know, serve our customers in the right way. And, you know, and you have superstar, you know, leadership, like, obviously, your CEO, Crystal is amazing. When you have those kind of resources, you have to use them. And I think sometimes perhaps um, CMOs get a little scared to use those resources. And it's like, if it reinforces the theme of what we want, which is we want trust, we want transparency, you know, we want to find that source truth, like you have to use what, what's at your disposal. Completely. And the other thing that thing, <laughs> they're going to hate when I call them a thing, the other thinking, not just on the executive side, we also pull in our board members of the, how do we build relationships? How do we build depth of connection? How do we build really impactful content and events? We have an incredible, incredible, incredible board. Totally. So of course I'm gonna reach out and say, Brian Lilly, who is this, one of my favorite CIOs, he is so much fun and so smart and so engaging. He's amazing. Oh, he's a trip. I have this total rock star in my back pocket. Of course, I'm going to call Brian if I need to do something. We're doing um, for our, uh, we have um, our user conference, our second (laughs) user conference that we're running virtually, which is Talent Connect World Tour that we've got uh, seven events across three time zones that we're doing on three separate days at the end of November, beginning of December. We have, uh, we have an executive panel as part of it. I'm going to completely get this wrong, but hopefully I don't. We have uh, one of our content sessions is Diamonds, data, and detonators, three things you have to trust. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I saw I think I saw the saw that on LinkedIn or something um, recently. It's such it's and you're like, those are th- three things you have to trust. And we went, well, who are the best people to talk about this? And we ended up asking um, one of our board members, Nora Denzel, who is absolutely incredible. And she used to run um, big data at Intuit and went, she is the person who's the expert on this. I have an expert on this that I'm not going to pick up the phone and call. Uh, and it is such an important thing for, for marketers and for demand gen leaders is use everything that you have in your back pocket, especially during <laughs> these unprecedented times, as much as I hate saying that, especially during COVID. Use everything you have, every resource, every exec, every board member to get that reach and to establish that degree of trust. Let's get into our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. 
This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you can open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. These can either be talent-specific or other ones in, in your career that you've used. Do you have three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items that no matter what, the CFO is not getting a hold of these things? They're staying. I do. So, and because as you all know, my my very first demand gen job was a job that wasn't even called demand gen uh, when I started. Uh, I, the website and our digital spend will always be protected. It is the invest in the website for a thousand different reasons. It is the face of your company to every single customer, prospect, potential employee, press, investor, everybody. Don't skimp on your website. It is the thing that pays dividends. It is the thing that pays more than you think it is paying, even from a direct ROI perspective. So always, always, always invest there. Uh, gosh, I think it's been at my, yeah, my last four jobs. Oh, I wish it didn't keep happening. I've gone in and looked at the back end of our web technology and gone, this is not going to get us to scale. And redoing website infrastructure is the most grueling, no win thing you will ever do. And I've done it four times in a row. We would joke about this when we do episodes of, uh, of marketing trends back in the day, and we'd have a CMO on and like, you know, what do you do in your first 90 days? And we would joke about the fact that like every CMO comes in and they're like, we, we need to fix the website and we need to, uh, we need to do a, like a brand rehaul. And then you actually did both of those things, which is hilarious. But the other, but it makes sense. Like when you shift your strategy, it's like your website needs to shift. Obviously, you know when you have a brand redesign, obviously your website needs to shift. And it's something that like is so iterative that what made your website successful in February of 2020 was definitely not the same thing that would have made it successful in April 2020 because the entire world changed. So it's funny how like if your infrastructure isn't good, then you can't be agile, you can't be flexible, and you can't like adapt to the needs of what people are coming to your website to do. Completely. What's going to make or break every single demand gen person in the foreseeable future is your ability to adapt and agility. If you can't move quickly, the world is moving far, 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 far too fast right now. You have to be able to move quickly. And if you are on old technology and an old stack and you have to log a ticket to update a page on your website and it takes three weeks, you're dead in the water. So it is the invest in the back end, invest in the unsexy things that no one sees and doesn't understand why you're doing it because it's those back end unsexy tech infrastructure things that make everything else you do faster and easier. We went from, it used to take, two weeks to make a web change that we can do in 30 minutes now. We had a really bad web infrastructure when I started. So hopefully yours is not two weeks, but it's, and then it becomes a meaningful resource de-investment because you're not spending nearly as much time to get one thing done. But now we have the same resources and just ask 10 times as much. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's also just a creativity killer because I think so often what happens is like, hey, I want to do this cool campaign. You're like, ugh. I have to like spin up, you know, something on the website that's going to take six months. And then it's like, ah, and I got to schedule with the social team to get the tweet schedule. Like, it's just all of those things, I think, like create this, this uh, attitude of, of not wanting to take a risk or create something cool. Cause you're like, you have to cut through red tape. Like it's the last thing you want from a marketing team that you're trying to inspire to be creative and and none of that stuff serves your customers better or creates things that are better for them like you don't want to see red lights when you're creating something our our job as leaders is to remove every blocker and every obstacle and to give the people that work for us the ability to be creative not to go ah oh, shoot i gotta deal with what okay other uncuttable budget items uncuttable budget items um where I'm going to say that's protected right now, just because it's been so top of mind right now, is um, our executive programs and executive engagement. It's something we're investing in in the future. And it's, it is something I believe in. We are a B2B company that has a large enterprise business. And a lot of our customers are big companies with decent deal sizes. 
we have to have to have to have that for long-term growth. And it is the, we have to have it. We have to put dollars and resources to it. So I will say, and it's funny as the digital marketer and the person that's always been really data-driven where I'm saying, I mean, you can't cut the thing that doesn't have that direct dollar attribution. It's going to influence, but it's not going to source. So for me, that is very, very, very much protected right now. Another thing that I won't let anybody cut, I'm going to do the controversial one. It's funny. I was listening to Scott Holden. If anyone hasn't heard the Demand Gen Visionary episodes with Scott Holden. Episode one. Episode one. I'm still I'm still upset I was in episode one, but it's okay. Scott's a good guy. Um, uh, what I'm so impressed, and I've known Scott for the better half of forever, of how much he talks about data and how data-driven he is and how much he is looking at that. And I know Scott as the the product marketer and the visionary and the the storyteller and just seeing him evolve so much to his trackability and his measurability and how much he's focused on data. So I'm going to counter Scott and be like, I started as the data person and now I'm going to pivot to the the non-data side so I can be old Scott and say like, yes, invest in the web and infrastructure because that'll pay dividends, invest in executive programs. And the thing to, especially as you scale to invest in, which is a weird thing because I'm going through budget exercises right now, I won't cut PR. I cannot ascribe a dollar return to my PR program, but what I've seen in the past is the anecdotal qualitative that just proves that it works because I remember I ran marketing at a company called Adroll. Uh, Adroll. It was earlier days there and hiring engineers in the Bay Area is really hard. And we're hiring engineers and I join and I'm early, early marketing leader. We only have a couple of people in marketing and I happen to hire a PR person and it happened to be the first hire that I have. And she's fantastic and she's getting us a bunch of press and we're getting a ton of press and it's the only thing that's different. And then all of a sudden, I remember sitting in an ELT in an exec team meeting and our head of engineering goes, I don't know what's going on. We keep getting all of these really good candidates for engineers. And our applications for engineers and inbound applications are way up. More people are responding. We're just getting better engineering candidates right now. I don't know what's different. I was like, Valentina, we're in the press constantly right now about what we're doing from an end side, about how the company, about best places to work, about our growth. We're in the media constantly. He's like, that's not it. But something happened that we're suddenly getting more better engineering candidates. I was like, this is the only thing that's different that we've done. And all of a sudden, a good PR program gets you better employees. And if I can get better engineers and increase my velocity of output, it is a lot easier for me to run demand. And that's just on the hiring side. I did the same thing when we um when I also was with Adroll and we were launching our European headquarters and our Asia Pacific headquarters. We had a big press launch around it and a big press campaign. We ended up getting a ton of candidates off of that and a ton of interest and demand saying who are these people they're coming in and just kept that steady drumbeat of PR and it wasn't intentional it just we happened to hire these roles faster than we hired demand gen. And it ended up providing a really solid halo effect on all of our demand gen programs. And it's, you are never going to say, I spent a dollar on PR and this is what it's doing. But I've seen it enough times where when you really lean into PR and you've got a stellar PR program, it's the uh, all boats rise. You're going to get better candidates, better employees, faster velocity. Your employees are going to be more engaged because It's fun to work at the cool company and you want to do more to work at the cool company. And then all of a sudden it's your inbound interest, your brand awareness just starts to tick up. Yeah. This is a great point. And I think that you have, um, you have this kind of like dichotomy where, especially in technology where you have these like the quote unquote unicorn startups, which are driven by valuations from like basically, you know, VC firms investing that are, generating buzz for exits, for IPOs, for all that stuff. But then you have like this other classic company like Talend who have this higher market cap, have been a public company for a little while. 
that have, you know, been a demonstrated track record of like products in the market that are doing really well year over year. But it's like you don't have that kind of like VC PR kind of engine of like the new hot company necessarily. And you kind of have to combat that, right? And not that, you know, to just fight, like fight off the startups, but like, how do you stay new and relevant? And like, you know, you worked at Salesforce for a long time. That was the thing that Salesforce did so well, right? Was like always staying fresh and new. And, you know, obviously Dreamforce being part of that. We talk about Dreamforce a ton on the show with a lot of your, you know, former colleagues, but like that is a magic in and of itself of like being the like cool, hot company. And, you know, another thing that, that you've recently had at your company, which is totally different is a, a huge amount of the executive team has turned over, right? So you have like new company, new brand, new, you know, new executive team, like new website. It's like all of that stuff gears up for the fact that like, okay, let's go get some freaking press, you know, like, let's go like highlight how cool we're being. And, and I'm curious, like, how do you invest in executive programs? Like, what is the mechanisms that you're pulling to invest in that, to invest in PR? Is it just like, is it headcount? Is it, uh, is it ad spends? Like, what, what do those investments look like? The thing I really quick, the thing I will say about Salesforce that I've said for years is that company was built on PR and events. When I joined there 10 years ago, it was PR and events, and they built an incredible business on PR and events. And then sort of digital and demand came. And I look now and I look at talent and you are right. We are a new company. Go to our website, look at our leadership team, read the things that come out. I am now the old hat executive and I've been there for 14 or 15 months. Yeah, that's crazy. It's insane. But we've got this fresh energy and fresh vibe and fantastic new CTO who just joined. And we've got all this great leadership on the go-to-market side. And we have this and it is how do we show up differently in the market? So we've done a few things. So part of it is, okay, how do we show up? How do we show up differently? So we actually hired someone specifically on thought leadership. And how does our, the woman on the team that's running our thought leadership on the PR team build out a platform for Crystal, our CEO, build out a platform for are sort of key executives in the company and how do we put our key executives out into market on not just their own platform but how do we tie it into what we care about what matters for us how do we tie everything to trust to data so we are keep putting this message out so which is what i i joked where crystal was like maybe can i do a little less press i was like sure hopefully she never listens to this because i'm never putting her in the press less yeah, right. But that's the thing. But that is the thing, right? You know, we had um, our pal Matt Trefiro on, you know, two years ago um, on a different podcast talking about how when he becomes the CMO, he's like, goes to the CEO. He's like, you're going to spend 33% of your time doing press, like non-negotiable. And again, like, not that you have to say that exact thing, but it's the mindset that like, if you have a star, you have to use them because that's the best way to develop relationships faster. It's the b- best way to develop trust faster. Like it's the best way to get your brand message out there. And like, go look at, I mean, go look at any of the like, you know, rock star, quote unquote, founder, or not even founder, but just CEOs that are out there for technology companies. Like they have a following and they have a unique point of view. Absolutely. It is leverage what you have. And I'm not willing to sit on an asset and not use it. I worked for Mark Benioff. I worked for Aaron Levy. They are what every marketer dreams of when it comes to CEO. They have an opinion. They're charismatic. They want to be out in the world. And with Crystal, our CEO, she's phenomenal. She is a great personality. She's incredibly smart. She's incredibly talented. She is phenomenal on camera in an interview. I'm, what am I going to do? Sit on that? That's like, you know what? I'm going to bench Michael Jordan. We, we, we can do this without him. We'll be fine. Absolutely not. I, you were going to be on the field and you were going to play. And even if you tell me I'm, you're tired, I'll say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Here's some water. Now get back out there. Again, nobody tell Crystal I said this about her. Hopefully the people that work for me won't be listening to this to go tell on me. But that's what we're going to do and it's leverage your best assets. And we have this incredible advantage of she's not our only executive that is great with press and smart and charismatic. We have a bench of these people. 
So let's let's put them out as much as possible and let's not use it haphazardly. It is hire a great talent, build the strategy around it. What are the messages we need to get out? What are the key platforms? And just start pitching and pushing. And in the beginning, it's going to be hard because people won't trust the new the new person. And then you get them out a few times. And then all of a sudden it's there is that momentum that builds and then they become, can you can I talk to this person? So we're very, 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 very focused on that. And then even on the the exec program side, it started with what do we want to achieve? What does good look like today? What are we building to? So built this whole vision behind it. And it is the the ex-Salesforce marketer. We all, everything you do, start with a vision. What is your vision for this program? Then back into how you're going to get there. And it became, here's our vision. Here's the strategy behind it. And we started exec programs as a hire a contractor, incubate it. A quarter later said, absolutely not. This person's full-time. What else are we doing? We're starting to see a lot of really good success. Let's put some money behind it. Let's get the support and buy-in from the leadership team across the company. Um, and let's keep pushing it out there as much as we can. So it is the and I don't think whether it's PR or executive programs, you don't need to start with 20 people and millions of dollars. It's make it somebody's full-time focus, get the talent to start thinking about it and build a strategy, incubate it to see how well it works. And the more it works, just keep throwing fuel. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, a competitor, or anyone else. Have you had a famous or memorable dust-up in your career? <laughs> um. Yes. Oh, gosh. Being a marketing leader, you know, it's always easy. Everyone loves us. We never get blamed for anything. All of our success is obviously because of us. And anything that doesn't go right is obviously because of the surroundings. Or as a marketer, it's the, uh, for anyone who's listening to this, if you're deciding if you want to get into a career in marketing or you want to be a marketing leader, especially if you want to be a demand gen leader, there's a big difference between demand gen leaders and product marketing leaders. Product marketing leaders are long-term. They're strategic. They're not going to be tied to the number. It's a little woo-woo fluffy. It's great. If I could go back in time, I'd be a product marketing leader um, because it would be far less stressful. No offense. Sorry, Scott. Um, <laughs> but for a demand gen leader, you are tied to the number. You are beaten up on numbers all day, every day. Every single win is because of the sales team. Every single miss is because of the marketing team. And it's par for the course. And the par for the course of being a marketing leader is because what we do is so visible, every single person in your company will have an opinion about what you do. And you have to listen to every single person and you have to have thick enough skin to not take it personally. I will say I'm in a really fortunate position right now with the CRO that we have, Anne Christelle, who is, she's just a phenomenal leader. And she is probably the most supportive CRO I've ever met. And she calls out and specifically talks about how much work the marketing organization has done and, and our new brand. And she will be the person that enforces with the sales team. You can't criticize new marketing messaging if you don't actually use it in the field. So you don't get to say it doesn't work until you go out and you pitch it and you use it and then come back. And if it doesn't work, give that feedback. So she is such an incredible um, colleague and person to work with. And I think if every sales and marketing relationship was that way, where you can call each other on what's working and what's not working, but you were also incredibly supportive of things that are working, I think the world would be a better place. But to the question, what is my favorite dust up? Uh, is not going to be any of these things because it's too easy to talk about how marketers get beat up all the time. Also, I've chosen this career path and I'm very happy with it, but it's good to know what you're going to walk into. So my favorite, and by favorite, I mean, of course, this happened, marketing desktop that I uh, happened. I have had um, 
a campaign that I was going to, that I was running get protested, we got threatened to get protested by Desmond Tutu and had to take down our multi-million dollar campaign because Desmond Tutu was unhappy with us. So I told you the punchline because I tell stories like Pulp Fiction. So this was years and years and years ago. Actually, I, the reason I think about this, I don't know why this is like Lauren reminisces about working about with Scott Day. Uh, Scott and I worked on a campaign called the Social Enterprise at Salesforce years and years ago. It is Salesforce's first global advertising campaign. And it was great to do. It was a ton of fun. We tied together it, we, we tied together a new message into Salesforce going up market. And this is days ago when Salesforce talks to maybe your sales ops person. It's not nearly as strategic. And it is, we are, it was the foundation for connected company and customer company and how you tie everything together. And we ended up calling it the social enterprise, but it was about how enterprises can use social media, tie different channels together, and really be closely aligned with their customers. Social enterprise is a commonly used term around um, philanthropic businesses. Um, So we're running this campaign, and this is our core message. And this is how we choose to use it. And I think it was, it might have been the UK government that threatened to sue us over that message. And then Desmond Tutu was unhappy that we were using social enterprise and talked about protesting Dreamforce over it. And we're like, who has a Nobel Peace Prize? Yeah, right? yeah yes, no, Nobel Peace Prize winner. And it was maybe it wasn't the UK government, it was some large entity in the UK was unhappy with us. Desmond Tutu, Nobel Prize winner, was unhappy with the messaging of the global advertising campaign that I was running. That, by the way, Scott and I and a teams of people were running this thing and working on this, had spent a ton of time and money. It was so beautifully executed of this is what we're going to do to use advertising on the internet to stair step a message. We're going to show them this ad and this message, and then it's going to turn into this. And and we're going to take people on this journey. We have the exact customers we're going to companies we're going to target. We know exactly who we're going to target. It is going to be this beautifully executed, highly targeted, complete journey to take people down this like six month path from what they think of us today to what they will believe in us in six months. Yeah, we had to shut the whole thing down and had to scrap everything we did because we made the United Kingdom and a Nobel Peace Prize winner um, unhappy with us. It's pretty epic. It is to this day, one of my favorite stories. And I think about this going, am I allowed to tell this story? I've been gone for so long. I think it's fine. It's sexual limitations, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to somebody if you use qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Conversational marketing, so hot right now. If you're not checking out qualified.com, I don't know what you're doing. You've been listening to this podcast for a while. Go check them out. We love qualified. And, uh, you know, it's uh, quick and easy, just like these questions. I agree with you. I am one tech stack fix away from buying qualified. Yeah. See, Lauren's going to buy qualified. Everybody is. All of our uh, all of our guests love them. Check them out, qualified.com. Quick hits. Lauren, are you ready? I am ready. Number one. What hobby have you picked up in shelter in place? My kettlebell. You mean literally picking up? I literally picked up. Um, I have gotten just insanely addicted to kettlebell workouts. It is 25 pound kettlebell. It's, if you haven't used it, they're amazing. I get in this super intense workout in 20 to 40 minutes and it is, um, it's kept me sane during shelter in place. 25 pounds. What do you... I, I don't know if I can lift more than a five pound kettlebell after after after, after shelter in place. <laughs> I need to get the threes. Do they have three pounders? They they do have three pounders, but you know it's all in the legs. Yeah, true. I, I note to self: work on my legs. <laughs> do you have a uh, something that you've been reading or listening to uh, lately that you particularly enjoyed? Uh, other than, of course, our listeners who need to check out Truth Be Known 
a new podcast featuring uh, Lauren, and it's all about decision-making and how leaders make decisions. It's really cool. So our listeners should check out Truth Be Known. But uh, anything else that you've been listening to or reading or checking out? Yes. Um, so I will give you I will give you several answers. Um, you know, we all need something to do during shelter in place. Uh, so I just finished The Orphan Master's Son. It's so good. It's so messed up. So totally read that. Um, so that I, I read and is fantastic. I also, uh, have binge watched Alias, which I never saw in the early 2000s. It's back when seasons were like 22 to 25 episodes. So there's just crazy. There's so much to watch when you have nothing to do. There's so many episodes. It's great. Um, and then I'm trying to become a calmer, more enlightened person that lives in the moment and does all of those things. So I'm reading a ton of books on Zen meditation and koans, and I'm going to these Dharma talks. I'm really trying. I'm really trying to um, learn to be more present. So if anyone is interested, go to againstthestream.com. It's like punk rock meditations. It's super awesome. They're every day of the week. They're an hour and they're guided talks basically from punk rockers. I love it. That's pretty sweet. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO who's trying to get their hands around demand gen strategy? Uh, if you are not a demand gen expert, hire a demand gen expert. Uh, that will absolutely, absolutely help. Um, get close to your numbers. Uh, get close to your CRO or whoever your head of sales, whoever your head of sales is. So much of the success of a first-time CMO, especially, or a first-time demand gen leader, you need to be uh, lockstep with your head of sales. So build that relationship as quickly as possible and have that really candid dialogue of things are working and things aren't working and make sure they understand sort of all of the efforts that go behind something. Lauren, that's it. That's all we got for today. I can't believe just time flew by. Uh, we'll have to have you back, uh, obviously, and uh, so excited that you, that you finally got to uh, to join us. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I think that's everything. Check out the new website. It looks great. Check out Talon.com, and we'll link it up in, in the show notes. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Take care. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.